Welcome to Women Igniting Change, the place to be for women leaders and decision makers who are passionate about changing the world and determined to act. I'm your host, Robin Jorgensen, former corporate executive, global speaker, and founder and CEO of Women Igniting Change. Let's dive in. Hey, hey, changemakers. Welcome back to the Women Igniting Change podcast. I am Robin Jorgensen, your host. And today I have in the studio Karen Sherman that I have the privilege to introduce you to. Karen is a longstanding international women's rights advocate with a 30-plus year career in executive and leadership roles, partnering with women survivors of war on the front lines and offices and boardrooms. Her newest venture is the creation of Virunga Mountain Spirits, a new world-class craft distillery based in Rwanda, where she has worked close to two decades. She's a sought-after speaker on global women's issues and has been featured on the BBC, CNBC Africa, Al Jazeera English, abcnews.com, the Consul on Foreign Relations, and so many more. She served as executive producer of The Other Side of War, Women's Stories of Survival and Hope, published by National Geographic, and is the author of an incredible book called Brick by Brick, Building Hope and Opportunity for Women Survivors Everywhere. Karen, welcome to the show. Thank you so much, Robin. It's great to be here. Yeah, I'm thrilled to have you. So Karen is sitting in one of my favorite places on earth right now. <laughs> She's sitting in Rwanda. So I came back to the States a couple of weeks ago, but she lives there. So she's sitting in, in one of my happy places. So Karen, you've been involved in global women's issues for 30 plus years. Can you share a little bit about what led you to this path and the motivation that keeps you engaged in that work? Sure, sure. You know, I started doing uh, development work um, early in my career in the former Soviet Union. So started traveling there to Russia in 1987 and got very enamored with the transformation that was going on in that country. And in 1993, uh, I organized the first of its kind women's labor and training conference because there were so many women struggling to make the transition from a plan to a market economy. They were thinking about how to feed their families, what to do. And this was an opportunity to bring them all together and talk about reskilling, um, how to look at opportunities in a different way. And it, it really catalyzed my belief in the power of women to make change in their societies. And, you know, I started a microcredit program in the Russian Far East in the early 1990s. And, you know, one of the things that I always remember is, you know, the men would come in and they're like, I just need a million dollars because I've got this great idea and it's going to be amazing. And the women would come in and say, I've got this great idea and I need $50 and I can run with it. And it was just, you know, that is really the fundamental difference. And, you know, what keeps me involved and excited and engaged on working with women is their ability to to adapt, to transform their lives, and in turn to transform the lives of their families and communities. I've seen that all over the world, and it's exciting. It's motivating. Yeah, because that's where they put their focus, right? It's back into the community. It's back into their families. Absolutely. Their motivations are just very, I mean, they're very real. And I've seen that again across multiple country contexts. If you were to talk to a woman in Afghanistan or a woman in South Sudan or a woman in Congo or a woman in Rwanda, they're motivated by very practical things. They want to have a life with dignity. They want to be treated with respect. They want to be able to take care of their families. They want to feed and send their kids to school. Very practical things. And I think that is why you see such, you know, dynamism and, you know, 
similarities really for women all across the world. So as you work in those different countries and different contexts, can you highlight some of the similarities and differences in terms of the challenges that you see women face in those various countries? Yeah, I mean, this is it's really interesting because, I, I, you know, I've worked in countries where there's hot conflict. I've worked in countries where there's protracted conflict. I've worked in countries that are just in transition without conflict. Mm-hmm. Um, and a lot of them face very similar challenges uh, having to do with violence and abuse, having mm-hmm. to deal with respect Um, having to do with lack of resources and opportunity. Um, It's really the kind of the universality of the female experience across the world. Um, And while the the catalyst for those particular contexts may be different, what's going on for women in Afghanistan, for example, might be very different than the situation for women in Congo. But their response to that um, is is quite similar, I would say. And so I, I see a, just a ton of parallels in terms of the variations of women's lived experience in these countries, including in the United States, quite frankly. <laughs> so how do you navigate and respect cultural differences while promoting women's rights in all of these various countries? I mean, it's a re- it's a really good question, and and I think it's become an even more important question as we talk about um, kind of diversity, equity, inclusion, and how we kind of um, approach our work from a development standpoint. And you know, what I've tried to do is really take a back seat, if you will, um, in the sense that you know I approach this work with a great deal of humility and respect. You know, I'm not Rwandan. I don't, I can't pretend to be Rwandan. I'm not an Afghani woman. I really feel like the women in their countries should lead. It is is really up to them to drive change. Where I feel like I can be helpful um, and, and when I'm wearing my development hat is really as like a champion, an advocate, really a catalyst, if you will. But, you know, it isn't for me to drive change in another society. That's how I feel like one could best respect other cultures. Yeah, I love that because I think um, a lot of organizations, especially Western organizations, they may go over with the best of intentions, but they go in with their Western lens and say, here's how you should do things. And that's definitely not the right approach. It's not sustainable, to be to be honest with you. I mean, you know, and I, I've seen really good examples of how development is done that is actually sustainable, where you're building local capacity and you really have leadership at that level. I've seen it done poorly, where you come in and you have a bunch of expats who plop in and say, this is how it's supposed to be done. And sure enough, when the expats pull out and the money is gone, there's not much left behind. And that's really a shame. You're really doing a disservice to the local populations in terms of creating a sense of expectations that cannot be fulfilled. Right. So let's switch over to your incredible book. So for those of you that are watching this on YouTube, this is Karen's book. It literally sits on the coffee table in my office right over Mm -hmm. here. Um, I have the hard copy. I've listened to the Audible twice. It's really vulnerable, real, authentic, powerful, inspirational, all of those things. Thank you. So can you share how you came up with the title and the cooperative that produced over 450,000 clay bricks that built the women's 
Opportunity Center in Rwanda. Yes. You know, brick by brick for me was, it, it was both a literal thing because we were building the Women's Opportunity Center at the time, which was, you, as you rightly point out, was handmade with close to 500,000 bricks made by women survivors of war. But to me, it was really a metaphor for how women survivors of all kinds rebuild their lives a brick at a time. And so, you know, people would talk about it brick by brick, but I would think about it woman by woman. And that really resonated with me because, you know, we've all had to survive something um, in our lives, whether it be, you know, violence or abuse or just a lack of resources or opportunity, um, the lack of schooling. And so to me, you know, it's sort of what do you do with that? How do you rebuild your lives a brick at a time? And so mm -hmm. that title meant a lot to me. And um, I've heard a lot of great feedback from particularly other women who have found that the story really resonated with them. And I, um, I really debated about kind of how much of myself to put into the book versus telling other women's stories. But then I, as I was thinking about it, and it went through multiple iterations, which is that, you know, you can't uh, ask other women to tell their raw and personal stories without will be willing to do that for yourself, which is why I put my story on the page alongside these women that I um, had worked with and respected um, so much. Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, in reading the book, one, I got to know you on a much deeper level than I had before. And it, it really has you reflect inward because to your point, we all have those challenges in our lives. And it's, you know, the way that we present ourselves to the external world, it's not necessarily a mask, but people perceive you in a certain way. And to see the human behind all of the accomplishments is truly a gift that you gave people. I hope so. I really do. You know, I think it's always scary to be vulnerable, to put yourself yeah. out there like that. And yet, I mean, the whole point of, to me of writing a memoir is to tell an authentic story. And right. I think if you're not being authentic, that people can feel that they understand that it just, they, they, they can tell. And so, you know, the feedback I hear um, most often is that, you know, it gave other women permission to tell their own vulnerable stories. Um, and that really is a gift um, because if you can present like that, I mean, it opens up all sorts of doors for you, right? Right, absolutely. So in the book, to your point, so you shine a light on different women survivors from different parts of the world. How did you go about choosing those stories and why was it so important to highlight their experiences? I, um, I debated, you know, I, I didn't want to tell overly positive stories or overly negative stories, but right. I wanted people to come away with the transformation possibilities so that you see an evolution in a woman's stories. And again, as you pointed out, you know, the, uh, the stories of the women are from all over the world and sort of what a woman might have experienced in Kosovo is very different than what a woman might have experienced in Iraq or Afghanistan or Rwanda. And yet they all, all of the women that were profiled in the book managed to really transform their lives, again, a brick at a time in whatever that looked like in their country context. And it right. just, I wanted people to feel like, American women, any woman who's reading this story, like, I could do that too. 
you know, I have my own challenges, but I could do that too. You know, right. I have um, all these resources at my disposal. Many of them are within me. I could make those kinds of changes too. And so in some ways, context matters, but context doesn't matter because it's really what's inside, right? Yeah. So I think you've probably just answered this next question, but I'll expand <laughs> on it. Is there a key takeaway or lesson that you want readers to walk away with from the book in addition to what you just said? You know, I like to say, because I've, I've worked um, in, with women in a variety of different capacities from a development standpoint, but also in the education space. And what I like to say is, you know, while education gives women voice, it's really the income piece that gives women choice. And that feels really meaningful to me, and particularly in this next evolution of my career, which is being a job creator, because I really feel that the income piece is mission critical to making that transformation. You know, a woman who has an income is able to make different choices about her life. You know, she could leave an abusive relationship. She gets to put her kids through school. She gets to decide how money is saved and spent. These are rights and privileges that we often just take for granted, but it's really a gift for so many women around the world. And one of the pieces in my book, which I love the, I love stories and data to kind of bring the point home, Mm -hmm. but the World Bank did a study of 20 developing countries and found that paid work actually was the single biggest game changer for women uh, in in the history of modern households and communities, paid work, the simple ability to earn an income. Um, And I have seen that throughout. So you need, you know, voice and choice have to go together because one without the other is really insufficient for transformation and social change, in my opinion. Yeah, I love that. So let's let's leap forward to now to Virunga Mountain Spirits talking about giving women choice. What was the defining moment that inspired you to start Virunga Mountain Spirits to begin with? You know, when I was living here um, between 2012 and 2013, where we were building the Women's Opportunity Center, um, left my husband back in the States, moved here with my three sons who were four. uh, My twins were 14. My youngest was 11. Um, and you know, you remember, I have that whole history in the former Soviet union. And I was remember it came up to the Virunga mountains and I was like, okay, vodka, potatoes, women, it is that combination of factors, uh, that was really inspiring me to think about like, what could we do? And, and you're, you may not know this, but you know, the history of women and alcohol making goes back to the very beginning of time. Women were our first alcohol makers. Um, and, and frankly, making alcohol was how poor women earned a living from the very beginning. And so when I thought about this business, I thought what a better way to honor the history and legacy of women alcohol producers all over the world and also create jobs for women along the value chain. I did not know that. That's an incredible stat. I love that. So you've spent decades working in Rwanda through Women for Women International, the Aquila Institute, now Virunga Mountain Spirits. So you could have created this in in many countries. 
what is it about Rwanda that keeps pulling you back and motivating you to create change there? Yeah. Um, well, and you know Rwanda well, uh, so <laughs> I think some of this will resonate with you, but I've just been uh, impressed with the country on multiple levels. Um, wow. I have seen its transformation since I first started coming here in 2004 up until now. Um, if you think about a country that experienced a genocide in 1994, which was just a blip in history, and what they've been able to do to transform their society, their people, how they've put women forward, um, the opportunities they've created, innovation, learning, um, development. I just, I felt like it was a place that I wanted to support, a place that I could really do business. And so, you know, it's just, it was a natural, it was a natural for me to think about setting up a business in a country like this um, that was really looking at innovation and looking at opportunity and loved the fact that we were creating jobs for women. Yeah, every time I go over, there's something new being built, something, some new evolution, some new something. It is true. I mean, it is constantly changing. And I think, you know, when you're talking about a country of just under 14 million people, landlocked, not, not a lot of natural resources, you know, you have to be pretty dang scrappy to really be able to transform your society in this way. And I'm not saying it's perfect and I'm not saying it's done, but there's a willingness and a desire to want to make that change. And I want to meet them there. Yeah, I love that. So you've chosen a sustainable production process mm -hmm. for Mountain Spirits. How do you see sustainability as not just an environmental imperative, but also a catalyst for social change and empowerment? Yeah, it's a really good question. So we're, um, for those of you who haven't been to the Brunga Mountains, please come. But but also you'll see that there's fields and fields of, of Irish potatoes that, that blanket the area. And so we are partnering with Winass Potato Chip Factory, which is literally right down the street from Vrunga Mountain Spirits. We will be using their unloved potatoes and potato byproducts to make the vodka so that we do not have to undercut consumption, which is really important. Potatoes are still an important food security crop in this country. And so I love the sustainable aspect of that. We're creating more opportunities for farmers because we'll be able to take their small potatoes that, that they can't use to make chips, for example. We'll be able to turn that into a premium craft product here in Rwanda. And then the waste that we produce at the distillery can be used as animal feed or fertilizer. So it's really creating opportunities um, throughout the value chain for people. We are actually partnered with a women-led cooperative that's going to be running a demonstration farm on site. So they will be able to use the fertilizer that we're creating from the distillery to grow their fruits and vegetables. And so I think that it's empowering because we're showing people a different business model, one that is sustainable, not just from an environmental standpoint, but from a business standpoint, you know, showing that we can create these unique partnerships that create value, um, not just for the partners, but across the community. Yeah. Yeah. That's incredible. So you've also emphasized using those local ingredients and upskilling Rwandans, especially women. How do you envision upskilling these women positively impacting the local community in the long run? Yeah. 
I mean, we are building a um, a premium distillery agro-tourism site. So we'll be both, we'll be a, a great employer in this area when there's not a huge number of employers here yet. And so, you know, every woman that we create a job for, we know we're going to see that multiplier effect in terms of the investment in her family and, and her community. The women who are farming on at the demonstration farm, the same type of thing. And so, um, the other important piece is we are bringing in a lead distiller from the United States who will spend at least a year here upskilling the Rwandan team and the women, hopefully having Rwanda's first female master distiller. And we feel like that's important in terms of the skill transfer, skill development, because, you know, we're creating new opportunities, not just for us, but for other future employers and businesses. Some of these, I'm sure, will go out and start their own businesses. Yeah. So look forward a little bit. What do you hope Virunga Mountain Spirits will come to represent both in Rwanda and on the global stage? That is a great question. I, you know, in Rwanda in particular, you know, when I think about the opportunity, it's such a beautiful country and there's so many beautiful lodges and hotels, so much potential here on the ecotourism side as well. You know, all of these beautiful places are serving imported alcohol from other countries. And I think about the opportunity of a premium vodka made in Rwanda, handcrafted in Rwanda, being a great testament um, to what is possible in this country. And the tourists and visitors and the locals being able to experience this great product here, that it becomes a local staple, a mainstay for the economy that people can feel very proud of. So that's here. And internationally, I hope that, you know, when, when you see Virunga Mountain uh, Spirits or Kerry Vodka, that is the name of our vodka, named after Mount Karasimbi, I hope that people say, wow, this is a piece of the country. I, can, I get to taste the Virunga Mountains. I get to feel what it's like to be in the Virunga Mountains just by virtue of, of having a wonderful cocktail with this product. That's incredible. So what are some of the most effective ways listeners can contribute to women's empowerment globally? You know, I, I'm thinking about, um, you know, for my own journey, you know, it's not a one size fits all. fits all. There's so many different ways to get involved. And I think for your listeners to really think about like what resonates with them the most. I mean, there are so many ways that you can come in. Like I have played on, you know, with women survivors, on education space, um, certainly on the, the economic development side. But, you know, I'm, I'm also motivated by a lot of different things. I serve on the board of, uh, have served on the board of directors of a group that's working on a global treaty on violence against women. I've worked on uh, trafficking issues. I feel like there's so many ways, reading in your community, there's so many ways to get involved. I think for your listeners to really feel like you don't have to do everything. You can pick a thing that really means something to you and you can start small. Just pick something, a, a place, um, an area that you feel like you want to make a difference because it, it resonates with you. And, you know, let your passion drive you forward is what I would say. Yeah, I, I love that advice. Uh, back in episode number two, um, we talked about how to narrow down your social impact ideas. Because to your point, there are dozens of areas that you can enter into this space. And they all have to be addressed. 
right? Of but course. That one or two that really speaks to your soul, trust that the others are being handled by someone else because that's their one. That's, that's their right. one. They're not that's two. right. And, you know, you can't solve everything and you can't solve everything all at the same time. And sometimes people, I call this cosmic paralysis because there's so much you could do that you can't even narrow it down, you know, get a little bit stuck. So pick a lane, pick something that really feels important to you and know that you can try and make a difference in that particular way. You know, um, when I, I remember writing this for my Facebook, you know, working to change the world one woman at a time. And, and I think about that. I can't make life better or change, you know, the universe for women as a whole, but can I make a difference in a woman's life? I think so. And she can make a difference in mine. Right. Yeah. So can you recommend some resources in addition to your own books, films, articles, organizations for our listeners who want to learn more and get more involved in supporting global women's issues? Sure, sure. I mean, a, a sort of a basic good place to start is UN Women. I mean, you know, they're kind of front and center here and they really kind of have their pulse on everything that's going on. And they have a lot of really interesting projects, um, you know, available. There's a, a lot of really, you know, more niche type groups like groups to support Ukrainian women or there's a like I have a soft spot in my heart for Afghanistan, having spent a bunch of time there. There's a wonderful woman who started a group called SOLA. It's a leadership academy for young women. I think you know about her. Um, she, you know, is doing amazing things for Afghan women's education. And so, you know, I, you know, I would look at groups like that. There's also um, an, an organization out of Washington, D.C. called Interaction, which really breaks down kind of all the different development players and kind of where their different niche niches are, whether it's a country niche or a program niche or, or all, you know, any of those. And so just kind of avail yourself of resources. But Google's great. It's a great way to, you know, I use Google all the time um, to to really kind of figure out when I'm when I'm trying, when I get stuck, when I need something. Um, and I should tell you, I'm writing book number two, aptly named The Vodka Chronicles, to, uh, which, which is uh, how I built this story for this business. Um, and there's a lot in there about kind of uh, women from a different perspective than I covered in Brick by Brick. But you know, just thinking about um, ways to engage with women at various different levels and, and what's important. I mean, I get asked all the time, well, you know, I'm not an expert. I'm not even a development professional. I'm not, you know, I, and I'm like, but, but you're a good human being. And that's really, that's really the only criteria that you need is you're a good human being who wants to do good things. That's all you need. And I think, you know, especially as women, we tend to negate the natural skills, talents and gifts that we bring to any type of situation. It might Absolutely. be communications or marketing or strategy that you use in your day job that can apply to you doing your work in that space in some way. 100%. And, you know, there's a lot of small organizations who wouldn't be top of mind who need that expertise and probably can't afford it. Um, mm -hmm. And so... You know, a, for a, a talented woman coming in to play a catalytic role in an organization like that, game changer. Yeah. So our passion, you and I, is all about the women. And 
What role do you see men playing in promoting and supporting gender equality? How can they help contribute to this change? Men are critical. I mean, for sure. Um, I remember, uh, you know, when we were at at Women for Women and running our training programs there, you know, the women would tell us, well, it's great that you're training us up, but if you're not talking to our husbands, our uncles, our brothers, you know, it's only part of the equation. And so we need to, we need men to be allies and advocates um, and supporters at all levels for our, our work. It's mission critical. And so, um, I, I couldn't say enough about how important that is for anything that we're going to do to make you, change in this space. Yeah. Can you give any specific examples of how you include the men? Yeah. I mean, we used to, so even, even um, at Aquila with our education programs, we would have an open house um, because a lot of, you know, you have some men saying, you know, I don't know if I want my daughter going to college. I don't know that that's a good thing for her. I don't, I don't, you know, or is it worth spending the money to be able to do something like that? Mm-hmm. And so we would bring the fathers in and we would talk to them about what those opportunities are and what that looked like and why it was important for their daughters to receive an education and how that would benefit the family. And I remember seeing some of those same men at graduation, like my daughter's worth three men, three brothers, you know, because it, they could see the difference that it made for her and her families and all of that. And you know, many of the girls who went to Aquila, for example, were paying for health care or school fees for other family members. It was just it's it's what women do, but it's what girls do, too. Um, and so I, I think um, showing them, bringing them along, engaging them, making part, making them part of these opportunities, whether it's education or income generation, all of that makes a, a big difference. Nice. So based on your experience, what are the most common misconceptions about social change? And what would you want our listeners to understand about the reality of that type of work? I think some of the common misconceptions are um, it takes a really long time. Um, It's really, really hard. Um, Not going to happen in my lifetime. Um, Insurmountable. I think Mm -hmm. those are common misconceptions. And I would say, you know, it depends how you're thinking about social change. My husband and I always had this this discussion. You know, there's the macro social change and there's the micro social change. And, you know, uh, I tend to uh, approach it from micro, which is the one woman at a time bit. You know, and I I think there's absolutely a time and place for macro. But, you know, social change can happen um, at all different levels. And so it can be fast. It can be slow. It can be policy. It could be transforming an individual's life. And so uh, it isn't just one thing. And so uh, I think uh, giving your listeners an opportunity to think about social change in, in a much more personal and dynamic way. Yeah. I love that perspective. So throughout your 30 plus year journey of advancing the rights of women around the world, what personal values and beliefs have remained steadfast and they haven't changed? Probably um, my sense of optimism, um, mm-hmm. which actually is interesting because it relates to the social change question, which is that if you don't believe that change is possible, it's not going to happen. Um, and you have, I mean, 
you know, I really still believe after 30 years in, you know, doing this kind of work and including the the work with Virunga Mountain Spirits, that transformation and change is possible. I believe that. And so, you know, I remember a, a friend of mine said, you know, cynicism and pessimism um, are, are luxuries, you know, only for people who come and go, not for people who stay and do. Mm, wow, that's powerful. I like that. Cynicism and pessimism are luxuries, not for people who only for people who come and go, not who stay and do. So I'm a stayer, I'm a doer, um, and your listeners can be too. Well, that is a beautiful place to stop right there. Karen, thank you so much. This has been amazing. For all of our listeners, we are going to have links in the show notes to Karen's bio, her book, Barunga Mountain Spirits, um, and resources as well. Thank you so much for tuning in, and we will see you back here next time. Take care. Thank you. Thank you so much for listening to Women Igniting Change. I know creating change matters to you. If you enjoy what we talk about on the show, please take one action today and share it with someone who could benefit from listening. Until next time, keep standing up and speaking out for what matters.